Gal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the July 2022 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and it's always a pleasure to sit down with Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode will feature a discussion of wide-ranging issues from across the country, including ongoing protection for marriage equality, LGBTQ plus IA, organizations on college campuses, and insurance coverage for gender-affirming healthcare. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you again, Shane. As many of our listeners know, we are hosting a special mini-series focusing on the wide variety of legal issues impacting LGBTQ plus people and their families in light of the Supreme Court decision Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. However, given the historical significance of this case and its wide-ranging impact, I wanted to take a few moments to at least touch on some of these issues in this month's Law Note podcast. Yes, uh, we, we do have an article in this month's issue about how the Dobbs decision may present real challenges for us down the road in terms of maintaining the victories that we've won in important cases. And the main reason for that is the extraordinary approach that the majority of the court, five members of the court took to the issue of substantive due process. Substantive due process uh, under the 14th Amendment was Justice Kennedy's way of handling the issue of sovereignty laws and marriage equality. And so the Lawrence decision from 2003 and the Obergefell decision from 2015 were heavily based on the idea that forcing sodomy laws against private consenting adults or banning same-sex couples from marrying violated fundamental rights protected as an aspect of liberty under the due process clause of the 14th amendment. That was the key. There were uh, many people who were pushing equal protection as a basis for those cases. In uh, the Lawrence case, Justice O'Connor, in a concurring opinion, based her view that the Texas homosexual conduct law was unconstitutional on equal protection. And in Obergefell, Justice Kennedy mentioned equal protection, but only as it relates to the part of equal protection analysis concerning fundamental rights. So the issue for us is whether the fundamental rights reasoning is endangered as a result of the Dobbs decision, uh, because Justice Blackmun had relied on 14th Amendment due process, uh, specifically privacy, in writing Roe v. Wade, the case the court overruled and said that it was egregiously wrongly decided. And the basis for that, according to Justice Alito, writing for the majority in Dobbs, was that when Congress approved and the states ratified the 14th Amendment in 1868, what they intended to do was to basically freeze rights as they existed at that time. That the 14th Amendment was not intended to confer any new rights. Uh, Only rights that were historically established at that time were to be recognized as an aspect of liberty. That's, of course, total nonsense and completely opposed to over a century of Supreme Court decisions. This isn't just about 
repudiating, I think it was close to 30 different opinions by the Supreme Court since Roe v. Wade was decided involving reproductive rights, which were all reaffirming Roe v. Wade in one sense or another or leaving it untouched. It's not just doing that. Uh, substantive due process goes way back as your, the miniseries that Gal is doing illustrates. It has uh, application to family law, parental rights, education, rights to education, all sorts of things that the court has come to identify as important aspects of our liberty as American citizens. And the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to restrict the states from abridging our liberty as Americans. And what the meaning of liberty is, the most radical view of that, which has been advanced by Justice Thomas and a bunch of dissenting opinions and concurring opinions over the years, is liberty means what it would have meant to people in 1791 when the Fifth Amendment due process clause was enacted as part of the Bill of Rights. And he said, in those days, references to liberty meant your right to move about. If you are at liberty, you can go wherever you want. If the state has observed the requirements of due process to restrict your liberty, for example, by convicting you of a crime or some other reason to detain you, that's an abridgment of your liberty. So Justice Thomas argues that's the only meaning of liberty that we should have. And that the whole idea of substantive due process, of recognizing other forms of liberty as a matter of judicial decision-making is uh, spurious, is illegitimate. And so in his concurring opinion in Dobbs, he calls for the court to go back to its substantive due process cases, such as Lawrence, such as Obergefell, such as Griswold, which was the famous contraception case involving the state of Connecticut, which banned the sale of contraceptives back in the 1960s. He said we should go back and we should reverse all those cases. He uses the word that the Supreme Court, the euphemism that they use for this. He says we should revisit those in light of. But no one else signed his concurrence. And Justice Alito, in his opinion, and Justice Kavanaugh, in a concurring opinion, both went out of their way to say, we're only deciding in this case about abortion. We're not deciding about any of those other issues. And Alito even mentioned those cases, Griswold and, uh, and Lawrence and Obergefell and said, no one should, should be claiming that we have in any way affected those cases by uh, this decision. The dissent said, don't you believe it? They're setting you up. They've got an agenda. And that's probably true. But uh, what we have to do at this point is tell people, one, don't panic. Because, and I've received uh, communications from people saying, does that mean my marriage is no more, no longer legitimate? Uh, does that mean they can arrest me for having sex, et cetera? And I said, no, the Supreme Court only overrules a specific case. And it's, it's up to later litigation to determine whether they're going to overrule other cases. Lower courts have not been given permission by this case to disregard Obergefell or to disregard Lawrence or to disregard Griswold. Some, especially judges appointed by Donald Trump, may think they could do it, but until the Supreme Court says that a case is overruled, it's not overruled. It remains a precedent in the Supreme Court, which is why some of the other shenanigans they engaged in during this term are very worrying. But at this point, we should tell people we have to be alert. We have to uh, engage in whatever activity we can to preserve these rights. One way would be an organized effort to repeal bans on same-sex marriage that are still on the books in many states 
because like the trigger laws involving abortion, they could spring to life. The Supreme Court would reverse uh, Lawrence or reverse Obergefell. Uh, so we got to get rid of the, uh, the bans on marriage. We've got to reform those because there are still states that have the old sodomy laws on the books. They were just held to be unenforceable under, uh, under Lawrence, but they're still there. And so we've got a lot of legislative work to do. But also, we have to continue educating the public about these issues. Public opinion is not where it was back then. Prior to Lawrence, we, I don't even think we had a majority of the public that said sodomy laws should be held unconstitutional. And certainly, we didn't have majority support at when we started the marriage equality campaigns, which really date back to the 1990s in terms of litigation. But now, we have a lot of public support on both counts. And so we got to work on maintaining that and increasing it. And we got to vote. You've you got to vote. The, the only way to ensure that the conservative majority get, doesn't even get bigger on the Supreme Court is to avoid allowing a Republican takeover of the Senate and the White House. So we've got to be very politically engaged to protect our rights. The way the anti-abortion people were very politically engaged in order to win their victory in Dobbs. And we've got to see if we, there are ways to limit Dobbs because reproductive freedom is also an issue for LGBTQ people. Is there a particular impact of Dobbs that's kind of the one that most keeps you up at night, so to speak? Uh, well, I'm very concerned about the ability of people to use alternative reproductive technology uh, to have kids because there are arguments floating around out there that the Dobbs decision now gives uh, the go-ahead to states that want to uh, ban that sort of thing. Uh, on the theory that uh, the due process clause does not protect reproductive freedom. When, when they held that there is no right to abortion under the 14th Amendment, that could broadly be read to include anything related to the topic of reproductive freedom. We, we hope it won't be. I, I hope that uh, if some state wants to now outlaw the sale of contraceptives in the case gets to the Supreme Court, I hope they reaffirm Griswold, even if they don't uh, premise it on substantive due process. And when we look back at Griswold, which is like the modern sexual privacy fountainhead in terms of constitutional law, uh, Justice Douglas writing for the court in that case did not rely solely on the idea of liberty under the due process clause. He looked to various other provisions in the Bill of Rights that he said related to protecting privacy and autonomy and things of that sort. So he drew it from a, a panoply of constitutional provisions. So I think Griswold is safer. I think there's a possibility if the marriage issue or the sodomy law issue gets back up to the court, that the court will find other uh, provisions in the constitution than the due process clause in order to come out with the same result that we wanted. Uh, certainly there were plausible equal protection arguments in both of those cases. So we'll see. But now is not the time to panic. Now is the time to get to work. Of course. And as always, the same tried and true advice, whether marriage was at risk or not, right? Do you have an updated healthcare proxy? Do you have judgments of parentage? Do you have a will? Are, are all of your legal ducks in a row, so to speak? So I guess that's, you're going to be going in much greater depth than all of these. I've already listened to the first of the podcasts and I see that uh, these, this is going to be a great series. I guess what, there are two more at least. 
We're doing a total of three episodes. Uh, the second episode really hones in on the concern that you expressed and I certainly share about yeah. family formation, protection and recognition. And then our third episode does a deeper dive in terms of bodily autonomy, medical privacy and access to gender affirming healthcare. Great. Well, I, I heartily recommend the whole series. It's, I'm sure it's going to be great. Thank you. Well, thanks for checking in with us about what's going on with dogs. Let's shift gears and talk about some of the other Supreme Court decisions that came out this term. Just a few days before Dobbs, we had Carson versus Macon. Can you tell us a little bit more about that case? Yeah, this is uh, part of a continuing series of cases by the court to exalt the free exercise of religion over the Establishment Clause. So people should be clear about what we're talking about. We're talking about the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights, in most cases, as applied to the states through the 14th Amendment, through the Due Process Clause, through the incorporation theory, which, who knows, could bite the dust if, if Thomas gets to write the opinion. But uh, at any rate, the First Amendment says very clearly that uh, there, there should be no establishment of religion by the government. And the freedom of uh, free exercise of religion shall not be abridged. The courts have always looked at this language and said, well, nothing is really absolute in the Constitution. But one of the problems we have is the Establishment Clause was for a long time interpreted by the court as generally prohibiting the government whether it's the federal government under the, under the Bill of Rights or whether it's the state governments through incorporation in the 14th Amendment from actively encouraging, subsidizing, funding, promoting religion. And this is an interpretive gloss on the language because the language just says there shall be no establishment of religion. And so if we go back historically, the way the current very conservative majority of the Supreme Court would like to do, what, what would be meant in 1791 by an establishment of religion? Well, in the Revolutionary War, we separated ourselves from Great Britain. Great Britain had an established church and many of the colonies had established churches, which meant that the taxpayers were paying for the operation of the church and that the church played a significant role in the government because it was established. This is the official religion of our country. Well, in the First Amendment Establishment Clause, at the very least, we are saying the federal government may not establish a church for the United States. And then in 1868, with the 14th Amendment, subsequently identified by the Supreme Court as a vehicle for applying the Bill of Rights to the states, states can't have an established church either. And you might think, well, this is odd. What state would have an established church? But guess what? There were some. There were some states at the time of the founding that had established churches. And when the Supreme Court ruled early in the 19th century that the Bill of Rights was only binding on the federal government, that meant states could continue to have established churches if they wanted to. But the Establishment Clause says no, but it was in the 20th century that the court began developing its jurisprudence of saying, well, it, it, that Establishment Clause doesn't only apply to establishment. It applies to any action by the, the federal government or the state governments to favor one religion over another, to favor a religion over non-religion, to uh, dragoon the taxpayers into paying for religion. We're supposed to have, and, and the, the language that was frequently used is uh, a wall of separation between church and state. This dates back to Jefferson and Madison. 
But the current Supreme Court majority, and not just the current, but uh, the Roberts Court generally, and even the last few years of the Rehnquist Court, they were pulling bricks out of that wall of separation. They were identifying situations in which government money coming from the taxpayers was going to go to religious institutions. For example, uh, they upheld exempting religious institutions from paying taxes. That's a subsidy. That's, that's letting them do something that other people can't get away with. That's uh, excusing them from an expense of supporting the infrastructure that the government provides. Defense, roads, canals, waters, energy grids, you know, all the stuff they, well, ultimately they do end up paying for some of it, in some cases voluntarily. But generally speaking, uh, and this, uh, a real clash point for this was religious education. Can the taxpayers be required to subsidize religious schools? And for a long time, the answer was no. Then in the late 19, late 20th century, there were some cases saying, well, if the uh, state is providing, for example, a school bus service to get kids to school, we don't think that it's really violating the establishment clause if the buses also stop at religious schools. And, uh, you know, to pay for things that aren't specifically religious in nature, that are more like infrastructure stuff. Uh, and, and the exceptions to the general prohibition started to spring up. One area that we all thought was pretty, pretty strong was that the taxpayers can't pay for the church to educate new ministers. But religious schools generally, you know, to what extent can the state be required or allowed to give money to religious schools? And maybe we have to distinguish between religious schools that are owned and operated by a church and religious schools that are just self-identified as religious schools but are independent. Maybe they should be treated separately. And that's one of the issues in another case we're gonna be talking about today, the Yeshiva University case. But uh, in Carson v. Macon, uh, we had a situation in the state of Maine. Maine is a state with lots of territory, but not lots of people. It's rather thinly populated, except for a few small metropolitan areas. And in many towns and small cities in Maine, there aren't enough students of junior high school and high school age to actually support having a school. But the state constitution has long said that everyone is entitled to a free public education in the state of Maine, without exception. Well, what if your town, uh, as a practical logistical matter, can't support a school? Well, the town could make arrangements with neighboring communities that, you know, we'll, we'll combine our students together and we'll have enough and we'll have a high school or a junior high school. But most uh, of the of Maine didn't do that. And so what the state did was they passed a law saying, if your child is not served by a local public school, the state will provide a subsidy to you for the cost of attending a private school with no geographical uh, limitations on that. It doesn't have to be a private school in the state or even nearby. It's, uh, it would say, you know, a residential school of some sort, like a military academy. Well, what about a religious school? They didn't make any exceptions for religious schools at that time. And in fact, we're told in the last year before the statute was amended to exclude religious schools, several hundred students were attending religious schools 
as subsidized by the state through this program. But someone woke up, it's around 1980, and said, look, th there's a problem with this under the Establishment Clause. Uh, there are cases out there saying that the state should not be sending money to religious schools to support religious education. And so they amended the statute to say that, uh, this is in 1981, it was amended to say that the payments could only go to a non-sectarian school in accordance with the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. So from that date onward, they were refusing to subsidize the tuition costs of people who were going to religious schools, people from communities that didn't have a local public school. If, the, if a community had a local public school, the program didn't apply to it. But you know, hundreds of students were involved. And this case that went to the Supreme Court arose because two parent, groups of parents in Maine wanted to send their kids to religious schools because there was no public school. And they applied for the money and they were told, you, you can't get the money. The money involved didn't completely cover the cost of sending the kids to a religious school because the legislature capped the amount. But it was a substantial uh, help to people because religious schools tend to be more expensive. And of course, uh, public schools, you don't pay. That's the whole idea, free public education. The state pays. Well, you pay through your property taxes and other taxes, but you don't pay individual tuition. So this case went to the U.S. District Court in Maine and then to the uh, First Circuit Court of Appeals. And they both said that it does not violate the free exercise clause because it's consistent with the establishment clause uh, under a... Uh, a case called the Lemon case, which uh, unfortunately, in another opinion, <laughs> the court pretty much uh, abandoned uh, the case of the uh, high school coach, a uh, football coach who wanted to pray on the 50-yard line at the games. That was a, a bizarre decision. But uh, in this case, uh, the case goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, Chief Justice Roberts writing for the court, he said, this is just like another case we decided involving a similar program from Montana where there was a, a state scholarship program established and people could contribute to a special fund to get a tax deduction from the state to support scholarships for students to go to college. And they were excluding people who wanted to go to religious colleges. And we held that they can't do that, that that violates a free exercise of religion. Uh, that if, if taxpayers want to, or people want to specifically donate to a fund for scholarships supervised and administered by the state to go to a religious school, to, to, to go to a college, you can't exclude religious schools. Uh, and this was building on some prior cases where they said, if there is a general, a benefit program of some sort established by the state, you can't exclude a religious organization from the benefits of that program if it would otherwise be qualified for it. It falls within the ambit of the general program. Express exclusions of religion are not allowed. So now they take the Montana case and they go a step further because it's a taxpayer money. And they're, they're saying now in reversing the first circuit and, and the district court, they're saying it violates the free exercise clause for the state to set up a program like this and expressly exclude religious schools. And so money will go directly to religious schools or alternatively, alternatively, the state will have to abandon the program. And that would present a real hardship because there are a lot of people in Maine who live in small communities that don't have secondary schools. 
So they have to figure out a way out of this. Maybe the state will have to uh, force various communities to combine their student bodies in order to make it feasible. Uh, maybe there's some way to do it if they definitely don't want to pay uh, to religious schools. And the dissent, this was a six to three with the usual people voting the usual way. The dissent pointed out that these religious schools follow practices and policies that the people of Maine, many people of Maine may object to, including discriminating against LGBTQ people. Uh, these religious schools, in fact, the two religious schools involved here, because this was uh, two, two families that wanted to send their uh, secondary school age children to these religious schools, both of them specifically enforces a morality code which condemns homosexuality and doesn't believe that transgender people exist and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, Justice Breyer, in his dissenting opinion, says, well, you know, the people of Maine may not want to have anything to do with that kind of discrimination. After all, they have a statute outlawing discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. It's against the policy of the state. And Justice Sotomayor, uh, in a separate dissenting opinion, says they're taking another brick out of that wall of separation of church and state. They're really undermining it. They're exalting free exercise and they're turning the establishment clause into an almost a non-entity. Uh, when they're through with it, it may just mean you can't have an official state church. We may back, be back to where we were in 1791. And that's the, uh, that's the approach of this court now to unenumerated rights and to uh, sort of general principles established by uh, the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment, uh, as they said in Dobbs. Let's take a look at the situation in 1868 when the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment was enacted. We think that the liberties protected are frozen as of that time. So you can't establish historically that uh, a particular liberty was recognized and part of our history and tradition at that time. It's not going to be covered by the 14th Amendment, which means uh, as far as substantive due process goes, it means the state has to have a rational basis for its law. And they said, uh, as far as abortion goes, a state may have a rational basis in preserving potential life. That might not be enough under uh, strict scrutiny if you had a fundamental right, but they said it's not a fundamental right, it's not mentioned. And there are all kinds of words that aren't in the 14th Amendment. Parent isn't in there. Child isn't in there. Family isn't in there. Marriage isn't in there. Contraception isn't in there. The 14th Amendment speaks in broad generalities. They talk about liberty. And the living constitution, uh, school of thought, which was uh, championed uh, for much of the 20th century by a majority of the Supreme Court, was we interpret liberty in terms of our modern times. Uh, Justice Kennedy made this point. In uh, Lawrence, he said in, uh, in Bowers versus Hardwick, the court pointed out that sodomy was against the law in every state until relatively recently. And then there had been states that had voluntarily repealed when they adopted the model penal code during the 1960s and 70s. And then that process sort of came to a stop and we still had a majority of states that banned consensual sodomy. And so uh, the court in Bowers v. Hardwick said it's not part of our history and tradition. So it's not protected by the due process clause. And Kennedy said, history and tradition isn't the whole story. That we have to look at our society and evolving views of what liberty means and that our founders didn't think that that would be restricted to what they understood. You read Madison's notes and you read the Federalist Papers and it's pretty clear that they intended 
a constitution to be subject to reinterpretation as times change, as understandings change, as social arrangements change. So uh, this is the war going on in the Supreme Court. And this decision is, is just another step in that, uh, in that process. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens next term. More than interesting, perhaps alarming, because we have a case that's being argued. Well, we have two cases that are being argued that I'm particularly focused on uh, in the Supreme Court that's coming up. Uh, we have uh, Creative uh, 305 versus Alenis, which is another confrontation uh, between the First Amendment and anti-discrimination laws. The wedding website. The web, website, right, the website. And they're, they're pushing it as a freedom of speech case rather than a freedom of religion case. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. But the other one uh, involving a videographer who doesn't want to make wedding videos for same-sex couples. There's a provision in the Constitution that says that the state legislatures shall uh, decide how elections will be run in their states. And there's an argument being made that this means that state legislatures can decide how to select the electors of the president and the vice president. And that uh, they don't have to have an election of the public, that the legislature can decide who gets their electoral votes. And this would be cataclysmic for the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is heavily based in large states and the Republican Party is heavily based in smaller, less populated rural states and things, as a result of which in the Senate, where the electoral votes and the electoral votes are allocated in the Constitution, you know, uh, on the basis of population, but uh, every state is guaranteed at least two or at least one, regardless of its population. The Constitution has a virtual gerrymander of the country. So if state legislatures can decide rather than voters, it is entirely possible that uh, the Republican Party will totally dominate everything. And that even if the voters would have preferred a different candidate, a state legislature, which the Supreme Court has said, we are not going to interfere with political gerrymandering or state legislatures. So a state legislature that's heavily gerrymandered in favor of one party could give the electors to someone who didn't win, wouldn't have won the popular vote in that state. They might not even have to have a popular vote. And we have to remember that early in the history of our country, and the Supreme Court is focused now on history and tradition, there were states where the state legislature allocated the electoral votes and they didn't have a popular vote. That was true in some states. So when you see figures for popular vote for president in our very early history, they're incomplete because there were some states that didn't hold an election for president. By the middle of the 19th century, every state was holding. I mean, if, if you look at our history and tradition since the Civil War, at least, since the enactment of the 14th Amendment, at least, uh, it has been pretty clear and that uh, the state legislatures don't have the right to substitute their judgment for the people. But who knows what the majority of the Supreme Court will say when that case is argued. Well, I simultaneously dread and look forward to our conversations regarding the next term. Let's turn to something that's going on very locally. I wanted to talk about the Yeshiva Pride Alliance versus Yeshiva University case. But before we jump in, in the interest of transparency, I wanted to note that Legal filed an amicus brief in this case, providing context to the collegial experience of LGBTQ plus students and advocating universities such as Yeshiva are places of public accommodation as defined by the New York City human rights law. That sets it up. 
Uh, and uh, this is an interesting situation because Yeshiva University was traditionally resistant to recognizing LGBT student groups. But eventually they came around at the medical school and the law school. I'm not sure about the School of Social Work. But in any event, they started recognizing these groups, but they continuously refused attempts to recognize a group at the general university, which would be mainly an undergraduate group. And uh, they claimed that they were not bound by the New York City human rights law, which was sort of odd for them to claim because as Justice Lynn Kotler, who wrote this opinion, pointed out when they got questions from people, presumably from alumni and donors, and religious, uh, you know, Jewish religious organizations, when they were questioned why they were recognizing gay student groups at the law school and the medical school, they said, well, we're subject to the New York City human rights law, just like any other educational institution. So they were on the record in writing saying that they are. But they claimed in this case that, first of all, they're not a public accommodation, that there is an exception in the public accommodation statute for religious organizations. And they said, we are a religious organization. We are Yeshiva University. We are the Orthodox Jewish University in New York City. But they, uh, they ran into something there. And that is that they are incorporated not under the religious corporation law, but under the education law. And religious organizations can be incorporated under the education law to run a school as a, a not-for-profit educational corporation. And uh, what happened was Yeshiva University was actually founded originally as a rabbinical seminary, clearly a religious organization. That's the, they were originally incorporated in 1897 under what was then called the Membership Corporations Law of the State of New York. And subsequently, the regents of the state university, which governs educational institutions, got them to change their name because their name was the Rabbi Isaac I. Cannon Theological Seminary, but it had sprouted into a full purpose university. It wasn't just a rabbinical seminary. They started an undergraduate school. They started a medical school. They started a law school. They started a school of social work. And so the, the regents said to them, you should really change your name because you're no longer a rabbinical assembly. So they changed their name to Yeshiva University. And in uh, 1967, they filed an amended charter. And the amended charter says that, that the name is uh, Yeshiva University is hereby continued as an educational corporation under the education law of the state of New York. Yeshiva University is and continues to be organized and operated exclusively for educational purposes. Right? So Judge Kotler looks at that, Justice Kotler, Supreme Court, looks at that and she says, well, you're exclusively for educational purposes, but the religious corporation law defines a religious corporation as a place of worship that provides religious services and services to senior citizens. I think they're talking about old age homes and nursing homes that are sometimes religiously affiliated, but you don't fit into that. And by your own words, when you were challenged about recognizing LGBT groups at the law school and the medical school, you explained to people in writing that this was not an endorsement of homosexuality by you. It was just complying with the New York City human rights law 
as a place of public accommodation. So you know what? You're a place of public accommodation. You can't be a place of public accommodation for some reasons and not others. Religious corporations are considered to be distinctly private, which means they're not subject to the public accommodations law. But you're an educational corporation, not a religious corporation. And they tried to come back with the case involving Fordham University, which is uh, run by the Archdiocese of New York. And the New York Court of Appeals in a case decided under the state human rights law said that Fordham University was subject, was a religious organization and it was not covered by the public accommodations provisions. And Justice Cotler said, yeah, but this case isn't brought under the state human rights law. This is brought under the city human rights law and the city human rights law has a narrower religious exemption than the state human rights law. You can be a religious corporation incorporated under the education law, but you have to be a religious corporation for all purposes. And you have represented yourself as being an educational corporation exclusively. So I'm gonna take you at your word and say you are subject uh, to this. Now, they had an alternative argument to make. They said, free exercise of religion, First Amendment, and she said, well, that, that doesn't work for you under uh, the U.S. Supreme Court's Smith decision. The, the New York City Human Rights Ordinance is a law of general application. And all schools are covered by this, not just religious schools. They don't make any exceptions under the city human rights law. And therefore, uh, she rejects their First Amendment argument. Now, I'm not sure whether that's correct in light of the way the U.S. Supreme Court has looked at this law of general application situation under the Fulton case. So we'll see. They announced immediately upon this decision, uh, she signed the order on June 14th. She says, you must recognize this group. They said, we're appealing to the first department. Uh, to the extent that they're raising the first amendment issue, obviously the state courts uh, have concurrent jurisdiction over federal constitutional issues but it means if it goes up through the state court system and they lose in the appellate division and the court of appeals, they can file a cert petition to the US Supreme Court if they preserve this first amendment argument because that's a federal question. So this one could end up before the US Supreme Court. It, it depends how firmly Yeshiva University wants to fight this. The fact that they have uh, LGBT student groups at the medical school and the law school suggests to me that they shouldn't be really fighting this, but they may feel that undergraduates are, they have to protect undergraduates more in some way, that undergraduates are, are younger or less mature, et cetera. And they have more of a uh, local parental status with them or something. I don't know, they'll make arguments, but there shouldn't be a distinction, I would think. Uh, when we're talking about the university, we're talking about high school graduates, people who are considered adults for many reasons in our society. Most of their students are 18 or over in the university, uh, the undergraduates. Uh, so they're legally adults, they can vote, they can drink, they can drive, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens with this. But uh, it's an interesting decision to look at at this point. Thank you for walking us through the decision. And it sounds like this is far from the final word on this case. Possible, yeah. Be interesting to see what panel they draw in the appellate division. Absolutely. So completely shifting gears in terms of topic and locality. I know we've spoken before about insurance coverage for gender affirming health care and that there's a pair of cases to discuss in this month's law notes regarding how that plays out with public employee benefit plans. 
Right. There's uh, courts in uh, federal courts in North Carolina and in Georgia. Uh, the federal judges involved were both appointed by President Obama. How this would turn out if one of these cases shows up in front of a judge appointed by uh, President Trump, we don't know. But uh, as of this point, uh, we've got district court decisions from the U.S. District Court in Georgia, District Judge Loretta C. Biggs, and we have decision. Oh, that's North Carolina. Yeah, Judge, Judge Biggs is North Carolina. And then in Georgia, uh, we have Chief U.S. District Judge Mark T. Treadwell. It's also an Obama appointee dealing with Georgia. Now, the thing to sort out here, what's interesting about these cases is there are multiple legal theories as to why a public employer cannot exclude coverage for gender-affirming care from the health insurance they provide to their public employees. One is the Equal Protection Clause, because most of the procedures that we're talking about are not solely used for uh, gender-affirming care especially when we're talking about surgery. Many of them are used for cisgender people having other physical issues, you know, breast reconstruction uh, surgery after a mastectomy, for example. And then we're doing uh, breast uh, reconstruction surgery for a transgender, uh, uh, someone identified male at birth who's transitioning to a female gender identity. So many of the procedures are the same. They, they might have slightly different names and different applications. So what is the justification for covering one and not the other. Is there an equal protection issue there? Uh, under the equal protection clause, you have to show intentional discrimination. And a theory that was mounted in one of these cases was that it has a disparate impact on transgender people to exclude coverage. But that won't work because the Supreme Court has said that the equal protection uh, requirements under the 14th Amendment only involve intentional discrimination. So there are uh, issues to be developed as to why they adopted a particular exclusion. Although it's, it's facially discriminatory, I would think. Uh, and that's where Title VII comes in, because we're talking about employees. And under Title VII, under the Bostock decision, and both of these judges rely heavily on the Bostock decision, under the Bostock decision, if you discriminate between employees on the basis of gender identity, that's a form of sex discrimination. And uh, if it's facially discriminatory, that meets your intent requirement. You don't have to show what people were thinking or what the reasons were on its face. Uh, Title VII is interpreted that way. And Title VII also has a disparate impact component in case you wanna to try to argue disparate impact. But Title VII only applies to employers not to insure companies. So you have to watch out who you're suing. If you wanna sue a plan as opposed to the employer, and that's what we had in the, in the North Carolina case, we had the, the state insurance plan for public employees and teachers was being sued as a defendant. And the court said, well, you can't sue them under Title VII because they don't employ the employees. They're not the employer. Who can you sue? Well, you can sue the employer for providing this discriminatory insurance through the state insurance plan. So you can sue the employer under Title VII and public employers at the state level are covered by Title VII. And you can also, well, who can you sue under the Equal Protection Clause? Well, you can't sue the state under the Equal Protection Clause because of sovereign immunity. What you have to do is you have to sue the state officials who are charged with administering 
the statute that governs employee benefits. So you can sue the governor, you can sue the head of an agency, that sort of thing. Now, they may have qualified immunity unless you can show that you're suing on a recognized constitutional theory that has appellate support from the relevant court of appeals or the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, this becomes complicated. Who are you going to sue? What theories are you going to use? But in both cases, the court said, well, Title VII is violated here. To the extent that you are suing employers, Title VII is violated here. There are also attempts to sue under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but that crashed and burned in, uh, I believe, the North Carolina case, because the Americans with Disabilities Act, when it was passed, had an express statutory exclusion from the definition of disability of transgenderism. And there's inconsistent case law. Some lower courts have said gender dysphoria should be covered as a disability to the extent that it is disabling either mentally or physically, and here it's more mentally than physically, but transgenderism or transsexualism as such obviously is not covered. So only someone who has a diagnosis of gender dysphoria would be covered. But then in terms of transitioning, especially surgical transition, the standards of care require a diagnosis of gender dysphoria before you can have access to these procedures. You have to be diagnosed. And uh, one would expect that for health insurance. You have to be diagnosed with a condition, a medical condition of some sort that requires treatment in order to be covered under a health insurance plan. In fact, most health insurance plans uh, exclude experimental uh, treatments. And uh, one of the arguments that the states try to make in these cases is, well, this is still experimental. We can exclude it anyway uh, as experimental. And the point is it's been around too long to be experimental now. We, we had our early attempts, actually the 1930s in Germany, to do uh, gender reassignment, but really modern gender reassignment dates from the 1950s. So we have close to 75 years now of experience with something. It's not experimental anymore. Too many thousands of people have gone through it. Too many doctors have specialized in it. Too many procedures have been performed successfully. And uh, one of the interesting things about the North Carolina case, Judge Biggs goes into great detail about why she's discounting or disallowing various forms of expert testimony proposed by the state. She said, you know, I've got these very impressive amicus briefs from the major professional medical associations all endorsing this and saying it's not experimental and it's uh, necessary care, and it's essential. And then I have these experts proposed by the state who say, oh no, this is, this is still an odd thing. And, there are people who have it and then they want to go back and you can't go back if you've got surgical alteration. All this kind of stuff. You know, you, you get into all of this. But she said, you know, the outliers aren't the people we rely on to make decisions that require expert testimony. The federal district judge is a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeping is to determine that it's credible science that we're being presented with. And she was much more impressed by the positions of the professional medical associations. The state tried to label this. One of their experts said, well, there's this transgender treatment industry out there that is busy, busy lobbying and you know, trying to get people to undergo these treatments because they're expensive and they make money from it and all this kind of stuff. The judge didn't buy that at all. She said, the outliers don't decide what the issue is. And the experts that they're putting forward are not really experts. And in fact, one of them even admitted 
that they have done gender reform, affirming treatment for transgender people, which they conceded was in some cases appropriate. Well, if you're an expert who's testifying that a categorical exclusion in the state insurance policy is uh, constitutional, but you're testifying that sometimes it's appropriate, you're contradicting yourself. You're, you're testifying against your client's interest. So, uh, so in both of these cases, we have injunctive relief from the district courts uh, could be appealed. Uh, the North Carolina case would go to the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit is where Gavin Grimm won his great victory. I don't know how much uh, Trump changed the Fourth Circuit, but I think the Fourth Circuit is still pretty sound on transgender issues at this point. The problem is the Georgia case goes to the Eleventh Circuit, and the Eleventh Circuit is a big question mark because Trump appointed a huge load of judges to the Eleventh Circuit, and the Eleventh Circuit is generally uh, more conservative on on some of these things. Although there is a lot of commotion within the Eleventh Circuit about how to handle. There's an on bank pending in the Eleventh Circuit on a lambda legal case from Florida uh, representing a transgender boy who wants to use the boys' restrooms at their high school and the high school was refusing. They won it in the three-judge panel uh, and they won it on a more narrow basis uh, on a reconsideration by the three-judge panel, which issued a second opinion a year after its first, but it eventually was granted on bank review. And so that's gonna be argued, I believe this fall. So we'll see where the 11th sort of comes out on that. We actually have another case in the July issue of Law Notes of a, a court ordering a school to allow a transgender student to use the restroom consistent with their gender identity. So we're continuing to win those cases. And there's a, a big body of case law at this point. And that's a great reminder for our listeners. You know, the Law Notes episode of the podcast is really just a taste, just a little highlight of some of the cases we wanted to chat about from this month. That's far from a comprehensive deep dive of all the cases there. So I always encourage practitioners to take a look. Okay, so I think that that winds it up on those cases. Well, we've got a few minutes before we wrap up today. Do you have any final decisions or cases of notes that we can discuss? Yeah, just a, just a quickie here, also involving North Carolina, uh, and also be, before the same judge, I believe, Judge Biggs. This was a challenge to uh, the state requiring that if a transgender person wants to get a new birth certificate showing the uh, gender marker that they have transitioned to, uh, they have to show proof of surgical alteration. This, uh, many states have traditionally had this, but there has been a move to, to move away from that, partly because you can't get surgical alteration under the uh, WPATH standards, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, uh, says you gotta be 18. Although there's talk of them in revising that down to 16. But uh, at any rate, you've gotta be an adult because surgical alteration has a permanence about it. And we think it's, someone should be an adult before they make that decision. So that means you can't get a new birth certificate in North Carolina under the, under the present rules. And furthermore, there are people who for medical reasons can't get a surgical alteration. There are people who are not covered by the public employee plan. And we don't know, you know how soon these decisions will go into effect, but it's expensive. This is expensive surgery. It's not expensive to the employer necessarily because the number of people who use it is very, very small. So it doesn't really increase their overall cost of the healthcare plan. But to the people involved, it's raised the money, the thousands of dollars to go through surgical procedures and everything. And hormone treatment is expensive too, when you're talking about the pharmaceutical end of this. So uh, in this case, the judge 
didn't have to make a decision. I think she had denied the motion to dismiss, but, uh, and Lambda Legal was representing the plaintiffs in this case, a transgender woman and two transgender minors born in North Carolina who, I don't even know if they still live there, but you have to go back to the state where you were born to get a new birth certificate because it's a record of your birth in that state. So uh, the, uh, the state and uh, the attorneys negotiated a settlement which Judge Biggs approved on June 22nd by which they will drop the requirement of proof of surgery. They still are gonna require a fair amount of documentation that you know there was a gender dysphoria, a diagnosis, and that a per- person is receiving affirming care of some sort from a healthcare provider, et cetera. And you have to provide certain documents uh, on this, but ultimately you will not have to prove that you had surgical alteration in order to get a new birth certificate. And this is particularly useful for minors for you know, teenagers who want to get their school to recognize them. The school says, well, show us a new birth certificate. So, you know, it's it show us that the state recognizes you as a boy or a girl now, and then we will. And that was a hang up because uh, you don't turn 18. Some people turn 18 in their senior year in high school, but that's a bit late to get all this done if you're transitioning as, as a young teen and more and more people are transitioning younger and younger. This, since this is a settlement by the state, it won't be appealed. So that's progress. And I think it's nice of note to uh, report some progress. A wonderful victory. I wanted to note that I believe North Carolina is one of many states that's still not recognizing gender marker X. So this is really limited to uh, binary trans folks. And it sounds like the settlement is sort of a middle ground between what New York offers for correcting gender markers on birth certificates, the self-attestation standard versus the prior standard that you discussed in North Carolina, mandating all of the barriers that we talked about with medical transition, including the additional barrier of obtaining a gender affirming surgery. Right. So, so North Carolina is dropping one barrier, but there are still others to overcome. You, you still got to get uh, professional attestation of some sort that you're receiving some sort of treatment. You have to provide some documentary evidence. They said you can, you can do a passport, but I don't know how readily available uh, a passport correction is without first having gotten a state birth certificate. <laughs> That's uh, challenging, right? Because they driver's talk. license. They said a driver's license might do, or other form of state ID. But can you get those without the birth certificate change? You know, in yeah. Carolina, I don't know. Some states you can, some states you can't. And we have a real patchwork in this country uh, of the law regulating uh, the status of transgender people. But I don't know that letting Congress loose on it would necessarily be an improvement at this point. We'll see. The fight continues on so many fronts. Yes. Well, Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and continue to find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.